This is Between Sundays from Commons Church, a conversational podcast about finding the sacred in the everyday. I'm your host, Bobby Sockold. It's finally here. This is your first episode of the third season of Between Sundays. We're calling season three, Why Does It Matter? We're exploring the elements of building a meaningful life. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl describes how we cure the soul by leading it to find meaning in life. Frankl believed people are most driven by their search for meaning. So it matters why you love what you love, how you use your energy, and who you choose to share your passions with. To kick off the season, you're about to hear a beautiful conversation between me and Sonia Yarmula all about while children's literature matters. This is not just a conversation for folks with kids in their lives. It's a conversation for reflecting on the stories that have shaped you, brought you more in touch with your own humanity, and maybe when the lighting is right and the heart is open, helped you sense something sacred beyond the page. In addition, this season, you'll hear a little extra audio of people sharing more about what they love through conversations about children's literature and science labs, independent film, board games, and the land. You'll be gifted with answers to the questions we're all wondering about. Why does any of this matter? We make Between Sundays on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region of southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. It's a privilege to make a podcast on this land. So, let's get into it. Welcome to Between Sundays Season 3. Welcome to the conversation. I think one of my absolute favorite things in life is talking about books. Yes, like me too. <laughs> most favorite. I have friendships that are sustained across time and space because we love to talk about books together. There's so much I'm looking forward to in talking to you about this topic and the meaning we find in literature, especially the kind that meets us when we're young or even paying attention to sort of the child that's still within us. But first, let's get a little more context. You and I met here at Commons, and you've attended for a while with your family, of course, pre-COVID mm-hmm. days. What has this season of life been like for you and your family in sort of the last year and a half? How has uh, it been? It's been strange. It's been a lot of ups and downs. So when COVID hit, I was with my entire family in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so the last normal day of my life, I guess, was like March 20th, 2020. So oh. the world had already shut down here. Everybody was telling me, like, you need to come home. And we were struggling to book flights out of New Zealand, which was locked down but you know they locked down so early that there were like very few covid cases they didn't have any restrictions so i was like waiting for a flight from christchurch back to canada 
and you know had time to kill before the flight so we were like going to restaurants and museums and everything was really normal and then came back and yeah seeing yyc with you know everybody was wearing masks everybody was wearing gloves and i was like the world has ended um was pretty crazy so yeah we did like the two weeks of quarantine um and i had previously had a job at the ufc in the archives um which ended when the budget cuts had happened Mm -hmm. so that was like I had gone to on that trip knowing that like when I came back, I was going to have to start finding a job, which was pretty much impossible, like (laughs) at the start of COVID. So it was a really weird uh, time of trying to look for things, but knowing like nothing is going to change for a while. Um, So I had a lot of time at home, which was not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I'm very, very close with my family. It was weirdly like a wonderful time of... I'm like obsessed with the Calgary Public Library. I like want to be, I don't know, an influencer, like evangelist for them. I just (laughs) talk about the library all the time. (laughs) So it was really weird to like, you know, I she returned all my things to the library before I left. And, you know, I had all this time to just like go through my bookshelf and things that had been like sitting on my shelves for years. And with my family, like being at home as well, you know, we got to just like have a lot of movie nights and like Mm -hmm. time together. And like, um, I had just finished grad school, like a couple of months before, and I was really dealing with burnout from that. Like that was something that pre COVID like had been really, like destroying me I was really not feeling very well like my attention span felt different I felt like crazy unhealthy it was just like this weird time of you know I'd finished high school I did like my four years of undergrad I did a really intense 12 month master's program and so yeah I just needed to rest and it was weirdly a great time to be doing that Um, I love that you can say that yeah out loud because I think (laughs) I live with a deep, deep introvert, and yeah. he would say things like, I mean, never felt better, you know? <laughs> like, I know the rest of the world is struggling, but I know. this yeah. is, you know, not having sort of the social pressure that has existed totally. before. He had the best Christmas of his life because yeah. we were just it was at just home. quieter. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think there were definitely like, parts of it that felt yeah. like really sad. Like it felt very weird to not be seeing people at Christmas and stuff like that. Like I did a gift exchange with my friends and we were like, okay, it's like minus 20, but like we'll all come. We'll wade through the snow and we'll like be in a park for as long as any <laughs> of us can like stand <laughs> in the snow <laughs> and just like pass oh, around wow, gifts and then just like walk home together later and so like I think it was it was a good time to I think like engage in friendships in like a deeper way Mm -hmm. like I think people who are like oh I'll see you when I see you suddenly became people who are like we actually need to schedule something and yeah there was like the time to be to be doing that Mm -hmm. um was really really nice So let's um, carry on with a little more introduction. Mm-hmm. What are some of the basics about you, Sonia? Like if Ooh. you were to give people like here a handful of things that are really core to who I am and how I introduce myself in the world. Uh, so I grew up in Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents immigrated from Poland in the 80s when it was still under uh, under communism. And I think that that's like a really big part of my family. Like we're still, you know, we speak Polish at home, like we're still very connected to that culture. Um, but I think also really, really identify as Canadian. I feel like my parents would say that they 
think that they are more Canadian than they are Polish, oh. which I think is really interesting. Well, um, how old were they when they... So they were in their early 20s. They so like my young. mom had just yeah. actually finished her master's degree oh, when she interesting. she came. Okay. Yeah. So they, they lived for a year in Chicago um, until they could get um, sponsored by cousins that they had living in Calgary. So that's oh. what brought them here. Wow. So they came right from Chicago to here and yeah. stayed. Yeah. And stayed. Yeah. yeah. So incredible. Yeah, years. Okay. So that's some things about your family. Yeah. You're not an only child. I'm not an only child. I have two older brothers um, and both of my older brothers uh, work in film. So I think that we're very much like a family that cares about books and movies. Um, my family can't walk past like a little free library without being like... <laughs> Free books. Yeah. I can't. I can't. I yeah. always have to look. Uh, I always have to look. Yeah. I just found two new ones by my house and I was like, oh, this changes everything. <laughs> so, so story. Yeah. Stories really are really important. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I'm very close with my two older brothers and I think that um, they both studied film, but they've also really been wonderful to me. And even though I haven't studied film, like we'll always go to movies together and things like that. And they would never disregard my opinion on something because I hadn't studied film. Like they were always really open and we've always had great discussions and, you know, our text chains are like, has everybody seen this trailer and <laughs> let's discuss and that kind of thing. So yeah, I think that's something that has really shaped shaped my life and like the kind of discussions that I like to have about books and movies and that kind of thing. And yeah, grew up in Calgary and yeah, ended up studying English because I couldn't think of what else I would want to study. And yeah, I love writing and yeah, I reading and that's me. That's great. And you, so, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about grad school. I wondered how much we'd kind of get into yeah. that. I love that you led with it. Just yeah. like, here's what that was like for me. And then you still are up for talking to me. Yeah, about totally. All the yeah. things you learned. Because I think when incredible. we talked, I was like, not, I was still like coming out of that yeah. and it was a really hard time. And yeah, I think that I can, to an extent, see the value in that. I was really fortunate. Like I got, I applied as a safety kind of thing, like coming out of undergrad, I really did not want to go to grad school. I was like, I know I'm burnt out. I know I don't want to be an academic. Um, and I was applying for jobs and jobs were like, you're an English major. We don't really care. Uh, so yeah, I think that grad school felt like a, like a smart safety. I actually only applied to U of C. Like that's how little I wanted to, to be doing it. Um, and yeah, so when I, I got in, I wasn't entirely surprised. Like I was, I've always been like a perfectionist, keener person who has just like, excelled academically. Um, but then I got really great funding and I was uh -huh. like, this makes this decision to say no impossible now. Okay. Um, so I felt kind of trapped Ooh, doing that. that. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> it was not. It was, yeah, it was really hard to be like, I want to be a person who follows my heart and says no to this because I know I don't want it. But I also am a pragmatic person and I know that doing a graduate program could potentially open up doors. But at the same time, like, I'm not sure what doors those will be. Um, I knew I didn't want to be an academic and I just felt like that was going to be start shuttling me down. Like, so the assumption is you'll do a PhD now. And I was like, I, I do not want that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, going into that, it also just felt like stupid to say no to, to such a well-funded program. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So it was very hard, I think, to be 
a very practical person right. who, who wanted to follow her heart. What attention. Yeah. Didn't love it. So uh, you went to study something you do love. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, that right? was the saving so grace. talk a little bit more about what you studied. Yeah. What you focused so, on. Actually, this kind of started in my last year of undergrad. So I was in, throughout my undergrad, I was in this program, which sounds incredibly pretentious, called the Arts and Sciences Honors Academy. So it was okay. a, basically a bunch of kids like me, like Keeners, entering their first year. Um, who were invited to apply to this program where they'd have like this very, basically like an enrichment program. So we studied Shakespeare, we studied Aristotle and music and um, invention and stuff like that. It was just like a ton of kids who were just passionate about learning things. And that was my by far my favorite part yeah. of undergrad. And part of part of that program was that I had to do an honors program. So I knew uh, that I wanted to study children's literature. I just felt really really passionate about that. Um, and I was just looking at like, what am I going to care about for a whole year that I'm not going to hate even when I'm like struggling to fill out a bibliography in children's literature <laughs> seemed like it. Um, I don't know, just, it, I think it was also partly that looking at the, the favorite books that I had, if I was like to rank like some of my favorite books that I've ever read, like a lot of them are probably still children's literature. I think C.S. Lewis has this quote, like a book that is uh, like a ch book for children that is not worth reading after the age of 10 is like not worth reading at all. Mm. Um, and yeah, that was how I felt about like a lot of books and, you know, looking at books and seeing like, I probably wouldn't be the same person if I hadn't read that. So that felt really important to, to study that. So yeah, I went into uh, my last year of undergrad just doing a project on basically like a small thesis on children's literature and orphan girls. Okay. Uh, yeah. Orphan girls. Yes. Kay. That was my, okay. I, yeah, I think that probably I sound really weird to like a lot of my friends. <laughs> I just like talk about orphans. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, when I was before like starting that project, actually, I did my third year abroad in England, oh. um, which was a really great experience. Um, and my supervisor who I'd already picked for that fourth year she said like the author that you want to be studying she has an archive like 20 minutes away from you so I got to go to this children's literature museum and like see the manuscripts of like one of my favorite childhood authors and yeah how these stories totally transformed like they were not entirely what I expected which was really amazing so to see. Which, who was it? Which so author? the author is Eva Ibbotson. So she was born in 1925 in Austria. Um, she was born to a Jewish mother. Um, and her father was a, um, from Edinburgh and he was a pioneer of in vitro fertilization. Um, which is so I think that just kind of makes her story more interesting because she's written a lot about orphans and her father actually used a lot of his sample. So she has like 600 siblings. <laughs> Which what? is pretty insane. Yeah. I don't know. I just always have to tell people that when I talk about her. <laughs> so I'm what like, did she write? What are the stories? Do so we know she that? wrote um, almost entirely for children. I think like she has some books that you could probably characterize as like young adults or, or adult books. Um, but I think they all like fit into this the same kind of microcosm. Um, so she had growing up in Austria, she just you can just see in her books how much she loved it. Um, I think that was really hard for her because 
she be having a Jewish mother had to leave right before mm-hmm. World War II. You know, her mother's plays were being starting to be burned by Nazis. Um, Austria was no longer safe for them. And so she really was there like at this golden era of music mm-hmm. and culture in Austria. Um, and then she spent the vast majority of her childhood kind of being shuttled from place to place. Her parents divorced. And so she was like almost constantly in the company of aunts who were taking her between her parents who like didn't speak to each other. She was at a boarding school, which makes it into its way into one of her books. So she did a lot of fantasy and, but I didn't really read those as a kid. Um, I went to an elementary school, which had like the most wonderful library, but um, yeah, the books of hers that I read that I was exposed to were just these three orphan girl stories and I'm a serial rereader. So I was just like constantly taking them out. And yeah, I mentioned them to my supervisor and she's like, you know, no, nobody's actually done any academic work on her. So I think you should. And amazing. Yeah. What are the three stories called? So journey to the river sea is the first Mm -hmm. one. Um, so it's about a little girl who, goes to the Amazon and has adventures and yeah, just the life that I want to be living. Um, (laughs) Another one is called the Dragonfly Pool, um, which kind of mirrors her her life as a child who was sent to a boarding school during during World War II and just like living in the countryside to be safe. Um, And the next one is Journey to, did I already say Journey to the River Sea? Yeah. The star of, yeah, the star, the next one is the star of Kazan. So that is a little girl who is a foundling living in Austria. She's been taken in by servants and suddenly her mother appears. So all those yeah. titles are incredible. <laughs> yeah. Just I, as I love them. Yeah. No, I think they really grabbed me the title. Like I remember when I ended up buying them, I was like, I have to have the editions that my school library had because they were just so beautiful as well. And talk a little bit more about being a serial rereader. Uh, that's something that I've always been, I think. Um, I think that like coming from like a bookish family where everybody loves reading, like I was just, I always enjoyed reading. And I remember my brother Sebastian, he, I think I'd like finished a book and didn't know what to read rest next. And he handed me the series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. And that just like made me become like obsessed with reading. So I think it was probably around that time that I started rereading things. But I remember my mom gave me another orphan girl book. She gave me the secret garden to read when I was about eight. And I remember for about six months, I would read the secret garden. I would read another book. I'd reread the secret garden. So I just kept rereading it. Like it was just, so yeah, it was just such a, I don't know, powerful read to me and yeah, I just kept coming back to that. So it's no wonder that, I don't know, Orphan Girls was just stuck with me. (laughs) Oh, I love it so much. Chapter one, there is no one left. When Mary Lennox was sent to Misslethwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true, too. She had a thin little face and a thin little body, thin light hair and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow, and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government and had been always busy and ill himself, and her mother had been a great beauty who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. She had not wanted a little girl at all, and when Mary was born she handed her over to the care of an ayah, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the Mem Sahib, she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. 
So when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way. And when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing familiarly anything but the dark faces of her ayah and the other native servants. And, they, and as they always obeyed her and gave her her own way in everything, because the Mem Sahib would be angry if she was disturbed by her crying, by the time she was six years old, she was as tyrannical and selfish as a little pig as ever lived. The young English governess who came to teach her to read and write disliked her so much that she gave up her place in three months, and when other governesses came in to try to fill it, they always went away in a shorter time than the first one. So if Mary had not chosen to really want to know how to read books, she would have never learned her letters at all. One frightfully hot morning, when she was about nine years old, she awakened feeling very cross, and she became crosser still when she saw that the servant who stood by her bedside was not her ayah. Why did you come, she said to the strange woman. I will not let you stay. Send my ayah to me. The woman looked frightened, but she only stammered that the ayah could not come, and when Mary threw herself into a passion and beat and kicked her, she looked only more frightened and repeated that it was not possible for the ayah to come to Missy Sahib. There was something mysterious in the air that morning. Nothing was done in its regular order, and several of the native servants seemed missing while those whom Mary saw slunked or hurried about with ashy and scared faces. But no one would tell her anything, and her ayah did not come. She was actually left alone as the morning went on, and at last she wandered out into the garden and began to play by herself under a tree near the veranda. She pretended that she was making a flower bed, and she stuck big scarlet hibiscus blossoms into little heaps of earth, all the time growing more and more angry and muttering to herself the things that she would say and the names she would call Sadie when she returned. From The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett. something that's really really special about mm. children's literature is that you can see yourself in these stories um and just because of your personality or something mm. like that but these are things that you don't really necessarily get to experience yeah um like I think that that's one of the things that we love about orphan stories and why they show up so often in children's literature because it's such an efficient way to tell a story for kids once you once you kill off the parents <laughs> like you incredible. can you can do anything <laughs> or even just like I don't know all like the greats of children's literature just like there is no parents to yeah. be seen like maybe they're at the house maybe right. the dad is off fighting in a war or something like that but like you are giving children the chance to experience something that's so different and I think yeah. that just becomes more and more vital as we like you know sometimes live in a society where like I remember playing outside like a lot as a kid and I don't know that kids today get to experience that quite so much maybe it's helicopter parenting and stranger danger which are you know like that's like a very real risk but also you know do kids get to experience the same kind of freedom right that we once did. I don't know. I don't think that we do. Um, and I think that children's literature just kind of offers kids that chance to, to see like themselves always in inviting stories. them out into totally. a bigger world. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And just seeing their place in it. Cause I think a lot of the time as a kid, you can just feel like you're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to 
do the things that you want mm-hmm. and you get to see kids in in books living those lives yeah. and yeah it's really powerful escapism i think yeah interesting let's give some definitions a little bit mm-hmm. i mean it seems almost kind of late in the yeah. conversation to go there because we just really <laughs> are diving important. in yeah but when we think about like what how would you define children's literature is there a cutoff is there like certain qualities that kind of have to yeah i think that that i don't know about certain qualities i think that that one of the things that we talk about in children's literature is um you know having a language for kids one that they can understand um Mm. i think that like a lot of hopefully every child grows up with like their parent reading to them um at least up until a certain age but you know something that they can understand on their own um i think at a certain point Mm. is really good um i think that yeah the cutoff i don't know i think Mm. i tend to think of children's literature being from you know, infancy to, to age 12, okay. I think. Um, and I think that the cutoff is almost sort of arbitrary because I remember, you know, being around that age and like starting to get into like young adults literature, even though I wasn't, you know, in junior high yet. And mm. I think that that is something that just depends on every kid. And I think even like something like young adult literature, we really struggle to define that because yeah. we see, you know, adults reading Harry Potter or something right. like that. And like the term teenager didn't really exist until like 1940. <laughs> um, and we like that only existed because we came up with like, oh, we have to start selling to people of this age group who have market. disposable income. So why don't we write books with them as characters? Mm. Right. Um, and I think that, yeah, a lot of our definition of children um, and children's literature comes by from how we look at kids and how we separate them mm. from adults. I think that's really important to yeah. recognize because I think like some of the earliest children's literature was kind of like written during like a puritanical era where we kind of just saw children as small adults who right. needed more help and not like there is this innocence to them that we want to protect we want to tell them stories that are not going to terrify them because i mean what were like the first children's stories like they were fairy tales mm-hmm. and you know i know we've had they're di- terrifying right like we've, we've <laughs> disnified them and, yes. like you read something like the little mermaid right. and like the the movie is fun and cheerful and there are you know crabs and things singing (laughs) i haven't seen it in a long time but like it's really fun and then you read the actual like story of it and you're like this is horrific right who would read this to children like there's a lot of violence in it and it's terrifying and there's not really a happy ending (laughs) you know malcolm gladwell just did did you hear his revisionist history i didn't it's incredible okay he is very um, critical of The Little Mermaid, um, the take by Disney on The Little Mermaid. And so they explore that. And then he has Britt Marling, who wrote The OA, rewrite a version of The Little Mermaid for our time. But the argument was much more like kids can handle more. And we have completely flattened the story. Totally. And... I think there is something to the effect of like kids know that the world is difficult and these stories um, kind of have a way of like equipping them for a difficult world in an interesting way. And you would love it. Yeah. It's a really great I think that that's like one of the things that really drew me to a series of unfortunate events when I read it. Cause that story 
is about, you know, three kids, their parents die in a mysterious fire mm-hmm. and they are sent to live with this man who is allegedly their relative, but he's absolutely after their fortune uh-huh. and tries to kill them at every turn. All the time. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like the the books are like pretty clear. Like he wants them dead. Like yeah. it's not it's it's not painted in a different light. Yeah. And I think that yeah, like they're very, they're kind of dark. They're very yeah. sardonic. And like, yeah. I just think that that was so refreshing to me as a kid. And I think, yeah, kids are absolutely capable of handling more than we think they are. Yeah. But I think that our instinct is still always that, to protect yes, them. Yes, as it should be. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I mean, but like, that's I, such an interesting relationship yeah. that, yeah, that relationship between our desire to protect and literature that is steps ahead yes for them like that kind of strange dance or balance Mm -hmm. Uh, you've talked a little bit about orphan stories and orphan Mm -hmm. girl stories i i don't think i had realized you know even stories like anne of green gables Mm -hmm. like once you laid it out for me in our conversation i was like oh my gosh they're everywhere they are everywhere yeah (laughs) and I would love to just hear you talk more about that. Like, I think there's something you had named some themes of like power being Mm -hmm. a really interesting theme, Um, home, identity, the underdog, that these are themes that we love or need. Yeah. Yeah. Talk more about um, why that's such an interesting, would we say trope? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We definitely would use that term. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that orphan girls, I think that that was one of the things that really, that was how I decided that I was going to study Eva Ibbotson's works. Cause I think I was listing all of these stories that I love to my supervisor and she was like, oh, they're all orphan girl stories. Was, was that like, the moment for you when you realized yeah, it? Yeah, I think it was. Yes. Yeah, because I think I was talking, yeah, I was talking about, you know, Anne of Green Gables. I think I was also talking with her about, like, Stranger Things, the mm-hmm. Netflix series. Oh, and I okay. was like, I just love stories where kids have to figure things out yeah. on their own. Yeah. And adults are the bad guys to an extent. <laughs> and, like, you can't, as a kid, always trust every adult that you mm. come into contact with. Even, even if they're, the ones that love you. Even the ones that love you, even the ones that are in a position of authority, like, and I just think that kids know that. And I think that's such a refreshing thing when you see it in children's literature is that kids have to decide, like, I'm put into this person's care, but I can't trust them. Um, Yeah. And I think that orphans, I think I was noticing that orphans, orphan stories are such an efficient vehicle for Mm -hmm. stories of, you know, deciding your own power and finding that because, like the most basic unit of society is a family, right? And an orphan is just by definition like excluded outside from it. that. It's out they're outside of that. And yeah, if there's nobody who is looking out for you and nobody who is setting an example for you, like that sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like that sounds like a um a really fraught relationship with the world. And I think that yeah, it's just a lot of orphan stories get to be so inspiring because you get to see characters find families for themselves Mm -hmm. or, you know, make decisions about who they want to be without having really role models to look up to Mm -hmm. or expectations placed upon them um, or somebody to guide them necessarily. So I think that was something that really attracted me to those stories. Um, Yeah, and orphan girl stories just kept cropping up in the things that I read, probably because, you know, I am a girl, but um, like the books that were handed to me were had like these 
these heroines who mm-hmm. I think teachers were like, you'll look up to this girl and that kind of thing. Um, and I think, yeah, it was just really incredible to, to see how common mm-hmm. they were. Um, I think that one of the things that I found really interesting in the research that I did was seeing these orphan girl stories as like an inheritance from fairy tales. Oh, talk um, more about that. Yeah. Like, I just think that in fairy tale, like, I don't know, one of the most obvious ones is Cinderella. Like, her father is alive. She, he marries a woman who becomes her wicked stepmother. And essentially, she's orphaned because she just doesn't really have any contact with her father. This woman who is supposed to be looking out for her doesn't and uses her as slave labor. Like, she's really excluded from the family that she technically legally has. Um, and yeah, so she remains kind and good and patient. And in the end, the prince comes and he rescues her and everything is great. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, yeah, that was something that, yeah, inspired a lot of orphan girl stories and something like The Secret Garden, um, A Little Princess, especially. Like, I think that those are stories that are modeled on if you as an orphan girl get to suffer in silence and you, you just, keep your chin up and you don't say anything mean to anybody, then eventually somebody is going to come and take care of you. Wow. And I think that, yeah, that's like a really interesting way. I mean, children's literature can often be didactic, but I just felt like that was so obvious. And I think that, or in contrast, like orphan boys, especially in fairy tales and stuff, like they get to use their wits, they get to be clever boys have historically always had more opportunity to like become right. like a self-made man girls yeah. have not had that opportunity historically you're like waiting you waiting for that self-made man yeah you're waiting for the <laughs> self-made man to be like hey i'm gonna take you away from right. all of this and well i'm so yeah. interested in what we do with those stories once we yeah. notice uh sort of the gender pitfalls mm-hmm. like they have they still have a place right we don't get rid of those yeah. stories but how do we live with them yeah. You've done some work and led us to this part of the conversation around <laughs> yeah. uh, the, I, I'm a independent, independence is probably one of the, like my biggest values, like totally. being yeah. able to do it by myself and do it mm-hmm. on my own and, uh, yeah. And you like be you, strong. Yeah, you weren't like a half person before you got married absolutely or anything. Not. Yeah. yeah, absolutely not. And, uh, it, it's interesting to think about did could those stories have halted my imagination mm-hmm. for my life and i would never want my nieces mm-hmm. to have like less than a like full imagination for what's possible for them yeah. in the world that they live in i mean they're very powerful little grade 1 girls already yeah <laughs> uh, but what do we do with stories that maybe those aspects haven't aged very well yeah th- i think that's a really good question i think that's one of the things that i love so much about eva ibbotson's work the mm. more that i started getting into it because throughout her orphan girl novels like these girls have been her like her protagonists are very good girls in some ways like they're very kind they're incredibly progressive mm. um like the story that takes place on the amazon takes place at the turn of the century when you know, the indigenous relations with the colonizers were not that great. And you really see her portrayed as like, she wants to learn Portuguese. She wants to learn the native languages in order to connect with people. Um, She's kind to servants and that kind of thing. Um, But all of these heroines, like they're scrappy. They they Mm, are not afraid. They're not (laughs) afraid to throw a punch, which I don't know. I just loved. Um, 
And I think that they, they all really reject the trappings of wealth. Like they all really make conscious decisions to like, I'm not gonna like run off with this person who he is the son of, like he's meant to be the heir of some great British estate. Like he doesn't care about that and neither do I. Um, and just like making this found family out of just like these, disparate people who are kind of considered others is really amazing. I think that when I was reading orphan girl stories like A Little Princess and The Secret Garden, I didn't really think about like, oh, the marriages that are kind of foreshadowed at the Mm -hmm. end of these books and the importance of wealth and like a man coming to rescue you. I still think that these heroines are incredibly incredibly tough and Hmm. yeah like they have they definitely portray like this idealized femininity that comes from the time in which they were written Hmm. um but these were also girls who are like stubborn in their own way yeah it's almost as you're talking it's almost like those qualities still transcend the limitation of the genre yeah like i think like the secret garden for instance like Mary Lennox like becomes like a kinder, softer person, but she's still like incredibly stubborn. She's yeah. not afraid to scream at a person. Huh. And I just has yeah. a voice. She has a voice. Yeah. yeah. And I really, really love that. Or even like I think that uh, a little princess like really follows that Cinderella story arc. Um, but I think it's also kind of subversive because mm. as this little girl is forced to become like a slave in her own boarding school basically she's still like telling herself like i'm a princess inside and i'm gonna act like none of this affects me and i think that that was something that i hadn't really encountered and i think it's resolved and i think it's yeah creating this imagination of yourself and there's no self-pity in her Uh, as a character to be yeah it's like those themes yeah again transcend the the genre and the, the time and place which i hadn't thought about yeah like that that's yeah. really cool that like strength of character and perseverance and uh yeah dedication to your own values mm-hmm. can can go further than the story even wanted them to yeah. necessarily that's yeah. really cool i what i think about children's literature in my own growing up i think i really missed out on a lot like I we had books around but I don't remember them being like books I really wanted they were Mm -hmm. just cheap like yeah I think I would have loved the classics uh and some more I don't know like beautiful stories right and that they weren't that accessible to me so in my you know as I grew up I found my way to them later and um but books have always been super super important to me but um what you had said something about there are books that you've read later that made you wish, oh, I wish I had this yeah. when I was 10. And yeah. I loved thinking about that. Like, who would I have been if I would have known Jane Eyre? Right. At you a know, younger age I or didn't. Something. I read it maybe 10 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. for the first yeah, time. Yeah, great so, book. Also another orphan girl. Exactly. Uh, and so what what are some of those stories for you when you think about that list of like Ooh. oh i wish i would have had this yeah um I... the one that most recently comes to mind is um the mixed up files of mrs basil e frank yes. weiler have you read that one i have yeah i yeah. read that i think it came up i think i was always like i had heard the title and then i think i read it like for the first time 
earlier this year and i was just like at the end of it just mad i was like why didn't i read this when i was 10 it's like the museum one that's the museum one yeah just these two kids not orphans but they're just like let's run away to a museum and they stay overnight and yeah that captivated i did read that in school that captivated me it's so good and it took me years to find my way back to it because that's so sweet yeah because i thought i i would still think about as I travel, like going to museums and I think I once read a story about kids sleeping overnight yeah. in a museum and I like, oh, loved lovely. that. And it was years later, a friend of mine who writes YA mm. was like, this is the author you're talking about. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. I, lo- I, I love that I that's loved something that. that stayed with you. It so like every did. time you were in a museum. Every time. Oh. <laughs> See, yeah, I was like, I got to the end of that book and I was like, I would have been thinking about that when I was in a museum. I would have been at the British Museum and being like, where are the hiding places? Right? Like that's yes. like where my mind would have gone. Yeah. And it's so weird to, to see that as a person in my 20s and be like if I had been 10 years old (laughs) and reading this at the part that my personality was like setting into its molds like this would have stayed with me yeah we I also remember now my my memory is firing uh I remember reading a book I don't remember the author but it was called mystery at cranberry farm do you know that? I the name is familiar. Cranberry and Farm. Is my like cousins and I loved it. Okay, I just remember it as one book. Now I have to go back and include it in the opening or yeah. something. But I remember doing a project for that book and caring so much Aww. about the project. I we did some drawing and some. Yeah. I think there this part of the spoiler is that. There are like little books hidden in a quilt and that's part of the mystery. And I don't remember how it all fit together, but there's still something about like that. It almost felt like a pivotal moment when I fell in love with story in a different Mm. way, even if I can't remember exactly the specifics. It was like I cared so much about the assignment around that story because I cared about the book. It was like honoring the story that I had fallen in love with somehow. I need yeah. to reread those. Yeah, I totally get to that them. feeling though, because I remember like I was before having this talk with you. Like I looked over like my thesis, and I remember I looked at the acknowledgments page for my undergrad thesis and like thanked my supervisor and my family and friends. And then at the end, I just wrote like, "And this is for Eva. This was all for you to say thank you." Because like I just wished that I could tell her oh she's goodness. passed away in 2010, but I just wished I could just tell in her like, yeah, "Yeah, like your books meant so much to me." Ah, oh, I love that. So. Why does children's literature matter? Oh, why? Like I mean, the, we can break this up yeah. a little bit. Why does it matter for kids? Why does it matter for families? And why might it matter still for us as adults? Ooh, good questions. I think that for kids, it's, I mean, there's so many wonderful things that come if you're a person who reads. Like, I mean, there's just an unbelievable number of pros to having that as a hobby Mm -hmm. one it's like you know keeps you keeps you relaxed i think i read a study that like they gave kids um copies of harry potter like the first book and saw that their empathy like quite literally grew like they would be presented with ethical scenarios and because they had read about a boy who was bullied and an orphan and an outcast you know that they had a lot more sympathy for people Mm -hmm. which i just think is you know what is the purpose of Mm -hmm. literature art if not 
to connect with people Mm -hmm. really. Um, yeah, I just think that like, there's so much that you get from reading as a kid, your imagination just grows so much. Like I've always babysat and I just always have found that to be the case in kids that I've babysat, like the ones who read more, just more fun to play with. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I just think that that's amazing. And for families, I think like just going back to what we were talking about with, you know, your nieces and, you know, how would they feel being exposed to books that maybe have not always aged well in certain ways. Like, I just think that if you're reading as a family, you can just have so many great discussions Mm -hmm. about, like, what do we value in this character? And, like, do we see that you don't have to be waiting for a prince? And I don't know. I don't know. I always say families who read together stay together. Oh, I love it. (laughs) At least that's been the case in mine. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And uh, why might children's literature have something to offer us as adults, maybe even those of us who don't have kids or aren't having kids? Yeah, I think that it's just, for me, it's felt like such a touchstone. I don't know. I remember like reading like the Narnia books and being like, I just want to be friends with the Pevensies so much. (laughs) Like I want to be a Pevensie, obviously, and like go to Narnia, but I also like want to be a person who they would want to be friends with. And I don't know like if everybody feels that way when they read stuff, but I've always been like, I, I would like that. I would like, (laughs) like this is, this is like a good standard to hold myself to almost, but I don't know. I just like, maybe it's comes from being like a person who reads a lot, but I just think that there's so many lines that have stayed with me. Like, like there's so many lines even of like, a little princess that I'll still like weep at, even though I've read it a million times. Um, but like, there's this one book that I really loved as a kid, um, where somebody is told this girl is looking for this journal that her mother had, um, and just kind of wondering why her mother would have a journal, why she would have a secret journal that was written in code. And then another character saying like, most smart girls like to write things down, don't you? And she's like, that's why I carry a journal. That's why I do that. And that's something that has stayed with me because I journal as well. And I feel like that's one of the things that's like, this is why I do it. Oh, I love it. It's interesting to think about it being a place for further self-awareness. Totally. But even more than that, uh, is there something aspirational to it that I aspire Mm -hmm. to be that reflective that yeah. I'm a smart girl who writes things down. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think that, yeah, it's a really, um, it's what you want to hold yourself to. It's what you want to see in yourself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think like if you think about art as a mirror, you know, mm-hmm. you look at yourself and you see kind of what is there and what, the gaps that you want to fill in. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, who are we reading about? Who do we admire? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think especially like, you know, reading about adult characters in children's literature. (laughs) It's really interesting because sometimes they're just awful or they're like, if they're, if they are in the narrative, like they can be really disparate. Like you have villainous characters, of course, but you know, um, I just think it's super interesting how in children's literature, like you almost don't see mothers, Mm -hmm. like either they are perfect or they're dead or their wicked stepmothers. Like those are your options for femininity, wow. like dead or perfect or just complete hag. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, I just feel like yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing to like reread children's literature like now as an adult mm-hmm. and be like this is the adult that I want to be mm-hmm. because these 
this is the adult that these kids trust and they look up to and they know can keep a secret and keep them safe. And I just feel like, yeah, the older I get, probably the more I notice. I still admire child characters, but I think that the older I get, if I read, like when I was reading these books for my thesis and stuff, when I was like looking at the adults, I was like, this is who I want to be. Oh, so other characters that are more peripheral as a kid. Mm-hmm. sort of take a bit of a center stage even if yeah. they're not exactly doing I, that yeah i think especially probably it's just like a facet of growing up and you're yeah. like if i were approached by these orphans who needed me to do this sketchy thing in their deception would i would i do it would i <laughs> would i trust that these kids who seem very smart that they know what they're doing hmm. almost yeah it's a really interesting thing to put huh. yourself in you like the shoes of the adults, I think, when you're rereading those books. Yes. Miss Minton, what on earth made you let a young girl travel up the Amazon and spend weeks living with savages? What made you do it? The British consul thinks that you must have all been drugged. Perhaps. Yes, perhaps we were drugged. Not by the things the Santee smoked. None of us touched the stuff. But by peace, by happiness, by a different sense of time. I don't think you have explained why you let Maya... Miss Minton interrupted him. I will explain. At least I will try to. You see, I have looked after some truly dreadful children in my time, and it was easy not to get fond of them. After all, a governess is not a mother. But Maya... Well, I'm afraid I grew to love her, and that meant I began to think what I would do if she was my child. And you would let her, began Mr. Murray, but Miss Minton stopped him. I would let her have adventures. I would let her choose her path. It would be hard. It was hard, but I would do it. Oh, not completely, of course. Some things have to go on. Cleaning one's teeth, arithmetic. But Maya fell in love with the Amazon. It happens. The place was for her and the people. Of course there was some danger, but there is danger everywhere. Two years ago, in this school, there was an outbreak of typhus and three girls died. Children are knocked down and killed by horses every week, here in these streets. She broke off, gathering her thoughts. When she was traveling and exploring and finding her songs, Maya wasn't just happy, she was herself. I think something broke in Maya when her parents died, and out there it was healed. Perhaps I'm mad, and the professor too. But I think children must lead big lives, if it is in them to do so and it is in Maya. The old lawyer was silent, rolling his silver pencil over and over between his fingers. You would take her back to Brazil? Yes. To live among savages? No. To explore and discover and look for giant sloths and new melodies and flowers that only blossom once every twenty years? Not to find them, necessarily, but to look. From Journey to the River Sea by Eva Ibbotson. would love to talk to you about one thing as we wrap up. Is it one thing? I have two more things. (laughs) So have you thought much? Well, I think you have. I'm curious about if you have language for this about reading texts as sacred. Mm. And uh, I recently read and loved Vanessa Zoltan's 
book praying with jane Eyre. have you heard of it i have not actually she is the host of harry potter and the sacred text a podcast oh i'm really nerding out in my podcast world and she spent uh her and uh her friend casper turkyle they did all of the harry potter books chapter by chapter reading them as sacred text so they wow. would read a chapter have a theme and how, tell stories a bit from their lives, have a discussion, and then they would practice a sacred, uh, they would employ a sacred practice. So mm-hmm. they would do something like Lectio Divina, sacred imagination with the Harry Potter text. Wow. So what's so fascinating to me about Vanessa Zoltan's work is that she would call herself an atheist Jew. Her grandparents are all like survivors of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And she has really interesting ways of talking about her relationship to uh, her her Jewish identity. And uh, yet she went to Harvard Divinity School. Oh, wow. And then continues to create work around reading as sacred practice. So yeah. this book, Praying with Jane Eyre, is her taking bits of Jane Eyre that she has loved And just to back up a little bit, she realized that she didn't sort of have a text that she loved, like a lot of the Christians she studied with Mm -hmm. uh, at Harvard. And so she was like, well, my closest thing is Jane Eyre. I've loved it since I was a child. My mother loved it. And so she was doing chaplaincy work and she carried it around. Uh, as Aww. if it were her Bible, right? I love that. <laughs> Look at you, just your yeah. old face softens. <laughs> and so she writes uh, essentially sermons mm-hmm. from texts that she loves from within Jane Eyre and mm-hmm. also really challenges aspects of Jane Eyre that uh, particularly how we see Bertha. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and what she does with that character is phenomenal. I'll yeah. leave it to the listeners to check that out for themselves oh, so or exciting. talk to me about it anytime. Uh, but I've been really, really, really intrigued by uh, this this idea that we read as sacred practice, mm-hmm. and particularly as our relationship with the scriptures, sometimes in times in our lives is is quite fraught. Maybe we hear other interpretations or the words on the page just feel like they're not really jiving with how we imagine the divine or how we hope that if there's a God at all, (laughs) this God may be in relationship to us. And so I've been both recognizing that this is something I think I've done for a long, long time Mm -hmm. is find the work of the sacred in texts that have meant a great deal to me. I love that you do that. <laughs> and maybe we talked about this I as well. I think we did. That yeah. In my imagination, and please people do not hate me for this, but this has saved me sometimes mm-hmm. is I imagined myself for years. This has probably been something I've kind of held in my mind for years is sort of tearing off the back of a Bible and yeah. stapling in or attaching. And so yeah. in my imagination, I have the text of my tradition that I continue to um, hold with great love and complexity in my life. But I also have, you know, these sacred texts and a lot of them are you know, in, in theology or in feminist thought in theology, Mm -hmm. but there's also, you know, works like Miriam Taves, which her, her ability to play out the complexity of sisters and their love for each other and their differences has meant a great deal to me. Me and my sister are really close siblings, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But 
I, 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 I had this kind of at the end, this idea, like, I think this is what you've done. I think this mm-hmm. is what you've dedicated yourself to. I think you yeah. went through a really brutal time because of your commitment to text as sacred yeah. in your life. And I wonder how we can invite people into relationship with the text that they love as something so like so important to the vitality of their spirituality. Totally. Yeah. I remember in the start of grad school, I had a meeting with my supervisor and she's like, how's the, how's grad school so far? And I was like, it's like not good, but I don't think it's supposed to be good. And she was like, let's, let's talk about this. And I was telling her, I was like, I want this rather than it being me arguing with people about whether Freud is valid as a way of reading literature or not, because that's like a really big thing in English or, you know, reading like these super niche books that nobody has, has heard of and, you know, are not maybe making an impact on people. I want to be talking about like, why have we studied like Jane Austen for for years? Um, like why, like what is still important there? What keeps speaking to us? And she said like, oh, you don't want an English degree, you want a book club. And I was like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I want. Um, and I think that was like a really important thing. And there was one class I took in grad school that I just hated and it was a poetry class. And I love poetry and it was so weird to be just constantly frustrated by these like super avant-garde things that I was like, I'm not clicking with them. I'm not clicking with my classmates who were like, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. Like I just felt like really alone and like being the one person who was like sitting there and seething basically. I was like, I can't stand this book. Um, And then I was reading the poetry of Mary Oliver Mm. after finishing that class and I just wanted to like send copies to everybody in that class and I was like this is what it's supposed to be like it doesn't have to be fancy it doesn't have to be a constellation of letters that you are painstakingly putting together in order to read something like it really can just be like a couple of lines about a peony (laughs) and how that makes you feel and think about you know how time is limited and how Mm. peonies fall super fast but like isn't this life beautiful that we just get to hold these petals in our hands like that's my favorite mary oliver poem is is peonies and yeah i just yeah i i i think like we had talked about it like i struggle with reading the bible which doesn't make sense to me at all because i have spent the last five years of my life like reading intensely as (laughs) scholarship really and so it feels weird that the bible is something that i find hard to read when i've read the whole of the canterbury tales which is a nightmare (laughs) to read like it's 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 not something that i'm like i can pin to like translation is difficult or something like that but i don't know i just the more that i read fiction and the more that i read you know beautiful lines like mary oliver and i don't think that she was christian um i think that her her background was I mean she had like a really tragic life in some ways but she writes a lot about beauty and the divine mm-hmm. and you know the connectedness of all things and those are the kinds of she things read that me every day yes which is amazing <laughs> I just I love that and yeah everything that she wrote I'm just like this is beautiful and it's no wonder that you know she was considered like you know America's favorite poet and mm-hmm. she was the one who brought poetry to the everyday and mm-hmm. made the everyday into poetry I think is yeah. so amazing and yeah I think that's where I find the sacred is that, mm-hmm. yeah in these lines that stay with me um 
I really love the author Kazuo Ishiguro, and he, in his Nobel acceptance speech, I think, I don't know what you would call it, but he said, like, part of the purpose of literature is saying, like, this is what it feels like to me. Does it also feel this way to you? Which I just, like, I, like, wrote that down. I, like, have that saved on my computer and my phone. And, it's like, not that's, tattooed yet on no, your body. No, not tattooed. <laughs> it should be, maybe. Um, but, like, that's something that I just come back to a lot. And just, like, that is how we, you know, the sacred is in connecting with people and, like, sharing that humanity and yeah, seeing that across all things, mm -hmm. I think. And yeah, that comes from reading a book and maybe not remembering the whole plot, but there's one line mm -hmm. that sticks out and it's like branded on your brain mm -hmm. and it stays with you. Yeah. So let's do a few um, few uh, recommendations mm. to wrap up. If you were to think about people connected loosely or closely to comments yeah looking to dive into um some children's literature who knows maybe for themselves maybe for yeah. family you know picking up reading as a as a family at home what would you recommend yeah uh eva ibbotson for sure yeah, to start top. yeah i just think that her books are really amazing um the orphan girl books especially but she's got a wonderful book called The Secret of Platform 13, um, which is um, kind of pre-Harry Potter. And it actually like there's some very strange parallels to that and that there is at King's Cross Station, there is a magical platform that takes you to another world. Um, also some some orphans kind of involved in that mm -hmm. story. Um, I love Narnia. I think that you I'll do. never, yeah, I'll never get over. Oh, I love that. Narnia. Yeah. Um, I loved Nancy Drew as a kid and I <sighs> just feel like that was something that, yeah, the more, the older I get, the more I'm like, this is, this is, this was so important to me. Like I just, as a serial reader, I remember reading a ton of those. Um, Anne of Green Gables is another orphan girl story. And I just think that that is something that has, I was actually resistant to reading Anne of Green Gables for a long time because my mom gave me a copy of Emily of New Moon uh -huh. by the same author. And I remember reading that and loving it so much. And everyone's like, oh, but you'll love Anne more. And I was like, no, there's no way there is nobody I'm going <laughs> to love more than Emily. And then I read Anne of Green Gables and I was like, yeah, there is somebody I love more than Emily. Really? <laughs> yeah, so that was wow. really special. And I just think, yeah, the, I, I keep recommending that to people and people who've never read it. And they nobody's ever disappointed mm. by Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. yeah. Such great storytelling. Yeah. Oh, and so just, just so beautifully written. And I just think, like, the, the story of love that comes from that mm. is incredible it just yeah it's it was so interesting to study it as a piece of work in like this orphan girl arc and see like see the differences and see how you know it's crazy that you know spoiler alert like the downward turn of fortune that happens and like how unprecedented that is hmm. in certain ways and like this orphan girl tradition and yeah just the way that the the adoption story within that is just so beautifully written yeah. um i just love it oh it's good this is great. Also, if you ever want to start a book club yes. as sacred reading. I'm in. <laughs> Let's do it. Because I will come to that. Yeah. Book okay. club as sacred reading. I 
have been dreaming of that. Yeah. Okay. I'm into that. It's <laughs> so good. I think Thank you so much. Time. Thank you for having it me. It's such this a delight so to just talk books on a Sunday afternoon. And I think people will uh, encourage to pick up a, a new story. Yeah. That's I great. hope so. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, my name is John, and I help Bobby make the episodes for Between Sundays. In today's episode, Sonia talked about how children's literature gives kids a chance to see themselves in stories. As a kid that read mostly Gordon Corman and Star Wars, that wouldn't have been me because I never went to boarding school or stopped intergalactic conspiracies with Boba Fett. But fast forward to my college years, and soon enough I'd read Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, and lo and behold, there I was. And it changed my life. Between Sundays is a production of Commons Church and the Commons Podcast Network. Bobby Sockled is the host. Jonathan Petkow is the producer. Artwork by Angie Ishak. Special thanks to Sonia Yarmula for coming to hang out with us. You can follow us on Instagram at BTW Sundays. It's good to be back.